Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Joining us is writer Patrick Bryden Keefe. With the drug-related violence in Mexico thriving, understanding how the drug industry operates is crucial to combating it. Keefe investigated the business side of the booming illegal drug trade, and in June 2012, his report, Cocaine Inc., was published in the New York Times Magazine. Keefe first discusses his impressive background. I am a fellow at the Century Foundation and a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. I trained as a lawyer, actually. I went to law school, and um, when I was in, I I was actually in law school um, when 9-11 happened, and I had done some graduate work before that on um, wiretapping by government agencies, which at the time was a very obscure subject. And after 9-11, there was much more discussion of, of that kind of intelligence and how we use it and how effective it is and some of the privacy and civil liberties concerns associated with wiretapping. And what I did first was expanded some of my graduate work into a book and kind of went for it. And then I uh, started writing for magazines from there. And then how did you get interested in writing about the drug war? I had spent the last God, the last five or so years writing a lot about the way, sort of about the underground economy, the underground global economy, about the way things move illicitly from one place to another. And so I wrote a book about human smuggling called The Snakehead. But I also wrote articles about money laundering and about gun smuggling and really the way that things move clandestinely from one country to another. And Drugs is obviously kind of uh, hard to overlook in that area. And so about a year ago, I started looking pretty seriously at um, what I was trying to look at was the the business side of the Mexican cartels. I felt like with all the violence that's been going on, people sometimes overlook how sophisticated these operations are as businesses. And so this was actually before I just recently went on staff at The New Yorker. But the, the piece that I wrote, the big piece that I wrote was a cover story from The New York Times Magazine over the summer about the business model of the Sinaloa cartel, which is the Sinaloa is the biggest of the Mexican drug cartels. And how long did it take you from the beginning to the end of the story? And... Well, it was probably about six months for that article. But then I've, I've continued to do research. So the article came out in June. So now it's probably been about 10 months uh, because I've, I've, I've continued with the research. There's a show on, on PBS called Frontline, and I'm working with Frontline to uh, sort of expand that article into a, um, a documentary. What parts of Mexico did you visit and research for your article? Well, I didn't, I've been in Mexico City mainly, and then down along the border on the U.S. side, um, I spent some time um, in and around El Paso with a, a guy who until recently was in the cartel. I haven't gone to Sinaloa. It's funny, it's a question I get a lot, but it's, it's uh, Mexico is actually a country that is quite dangerous for journalists now. Um, and so there are some places that I, um, you know, my, my, I'm not a, a war correspondent. You know, my, my risk threshold is, uh, is actually reasonably low. So I wouldn't, so, you know, I mean, the thing to do with the Sinaloa cartel would be to go to the state of Sinaloa, but it's a, it's a pretty dangerous place for a gringo to show up with a notebook. Sure, I can imagine, especially when you're covering them, right? And how did you develop that relationship with your source from the Sinaloa? Yeah, what I did was, I mean, I I had really wanted to um, to try and track down people who actually work in the business, and it was a it was a long process. But what I did was, I I started looking at lawsuits in the United States, basically prosecutions of cartel members. I mean, the thing about the the Sinaloa, this is true of a number of the cartels, but Sinaloa in particular, it's so big and so vast in terms of the amount of narcotics that it moves that it's kind of a bit of an octopus. And you have these tentacles in all kinds of American cities. And what happens is that when people get busted, there are these criminal trials. And often in the criminal trials, they will They'll arrest one of you know they'll arrest a whole bunch of people and then they'll persuade some of them to testify against the others, and so what I did was I tracked down those lawsuits and I found the transcripts of the trial testimony and then I would find out where those people were who testified, and in some cases they were they were locked up in in state or federal prison um, and I would write them letters and talk with them on the phone and then in other instances people had gotten out of prison. And so, for instance, this guy in, in El Paso was uh, was just out there, you know, having testified against the cartel. He was uh, he was out there living in El Paso, and I went and visited him, spent some time with him. Wasn't it dangerous, or isn't it dangerous for them to talk to you? And what what was their incentive for talking to you? Look, I think anybody who testifies against a drug cartel and then goes back out into the world is um, living a dangerous life to begin with. 
I think different people had different incentives for talking to me. I mean, certainly some of the people in prison um, were looking at very long sentences. And, and to be perfectly candid, I, th I think people are lonely. You know, they like the company. And, and uh, I also think that there's a very strong human instinct, even among criminals, to tell our stories. So it was kind of fun in some instances because there were these people who clearly have been very careful about and kind of secretive about what they do for years and years. But if you can kind of get them in the right mood, make them feel comfortable, they will really talk a great deal. It almost seems like a relief for them to talk. Do they remain anonymous or probably a mix of both? Yes. There's one guy who I named, and then there were a couple who were anonymous. I had to be very careful because in some instances you, you don't use somebody's name, but if you give details about their, you know, every case is distinct, right? So if you give too many details about the case, then it's going to be obvious to people who's talking. So I think people also took some comfort in that. And again, because Sinaloa is such a huge, or, I mean, like if you if you look at the very lowest estimates of um, the size of the drug trade from Mexico into the United States, and you look at the market share of the Sinaloa cartel, by the most conservative estimates, this one organization is probably probably has about three billion dollars a year in revenue. So it's really big, you know. Like if it was a legitimate corporation, it would be really, really big. And in some ways, that's a comfort to the people talking with you, right? Because they know there's so many worker bees out there, uh, really around the planet at this point. That if you don't use their name, it's not necessarily going to be easy to trace it back to them. Okay. And have you had any response from the organization since your article has come out? <laughs> so I haven't I haven't had any response from the organization proper. I did speak with somebody who I'm working on this frontline project with who has been down in Sinaloa um and he he came back and said that um that uh they have had the article translated and it has been widely read, which is sort of an interesting thing to hear. I've gotten a lot of feedback. I've gotten some feedback from the people who I interviewed, you know, the, the people in the drug business, who've actually been really nice about it. A couple of them complained that it was too long, which I thought was funny and probably hard to argue with. But I, I think they kind of liked that it took it, – it sort of looked at the business as a business because I think that some of these some of these guys actually take quite a bit of pride in, in how sophisticated the network they've devised is. And uh, so I felt like they, you know, not that I whitewashed any of the violence or the brutality of what they do, but I feel like they, they felt that some credit was being given to them, that they, you know, they're not merely sadists. They are sadists who are also good businessmen. For our listeners, could you describe the, the scope of the problem? How many drugs are moving north? What kinds? And the, um, you said it's a $3 billion year. I mean, you can almost tell the history of the, of the business if you look back over the decades. Marijuana and, to a lesser extent, um, heroin have always been grown in, in certain parts of Mexico and smuggled across the border. That's sort of uh, as old as the history of the border. You've had these two drugs produced in Mexico and then um, brought over uh, into the United States. Something interesting happened in the 1980s, which was that you can't grow cocaine, you can't grow coca in, in Mexico. It only grows in certain places, really the Andes. And historically, what would happen is cocaine would move from Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, into the United States, really through Florida and through the Caribbean. And what happened in the 80s is that you had this huge crackdown by U.S. authorities and the Coast Guard, and this is sort of the Miami Vice period, where they really started policing the water and, and also the skies, because a lot of this was in planes, uh, in the Caribbean. And that, that kind of law enforcement juggernaut that they threw at this problem was actually successful. But it was successful only insofar as it, um, you know, people in the DEA call it the, the balloon effect, that you sort of squeeze one end of the balloon and then the other end gets big. So what happened is that rather than just quit and go home, the Colombians started, you know, they figured, well, if, if there's all this pressure preventing us from getting into Florida, why don't we just go up through Mexico overland where you have this massive 2,000-mile border that's hard to police? And initially what happened is that they hired the Mexicans, all of the big Mexican drug cartels that we know of today. Initially, they were really just kind of middlemen who were like performing a function where they were paid to take the drugs up through Mexico into the U.S. But what happened in the 90s is that they started, as they were bringing the drugs up, they started saying, look, you know, Rather than pay me in cash, why don't you pay me in kind? Why don't you let me invest in a little bit of my own product? And eventually, sort of through that move, they actually became the dominant ones. So they sort of vertically integrated to some extent, getting out of the transportation business and actually into the, the cocaine business. And uh, 
so then, you know, you, you had three drugs that were coming across. And then in the last 10 years or so, we've had a similar thing where when methamphetamine became a big problem across the U.S., one of the legal responses that the U.S. government took was to make it harder to um, obtain the precursor chemicals for meth to make it here. This is, this is the reason when you go, when you have a cold and you go and buy Sufed, um, they ask for ID and won't let you buy too many. But that was another kind of unintended consequence is that when it became harder to manufacture methamphetamine in this country in large quantities, the Mexican cartels, who are very entrepreneurial about this, saw an opportunity and realized, boy, we can manufacture it here just in enormous volumes and send that as well. So now the big cartels like Sinaloa are, are not just vertically integrated, but they're also horizontally integrated in that they – Sinaloa actually moves all four drugs now, a lot of marijuana, uh, a lot of cocaine, a small amount of heroin, and increasingly a, a great deal of uh, methamphetamine. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. I read in uh, one of your articles that um, someone asked you about the impact of medical marijuana, and that the sources you talked to didn't said it didn't have any impact on their business. Right, which was surprising to me because I mean there are, and it's I mean it's, it becomes a really relevant issue after the election um, a few days ago because we've seen these two ballot initiatives that passed in Colorado and Washington State, actually not just for medical marijuana, but legalizing marijuana altogether. And there's a lot of speculation about what that's going to do to the cartels. Some people think it will actually really hit them in a, in a pretty intense way in terms of their bottom line, in part because marijuana is still a big part of its – when we think of drug cartels, we often think of cocaine and hard drugs, but marijuana is a big part of their business. And it's also fairly cheap to produce, uh, so it, it ends up kind of subsidizing the more expensive logistics of getting cocaine from, from uh, South America up here. So there are some people who think that, that if we if we legalize marijuana in the U.S., it'll really um, hit them hard. And, and there may be some truth to that. I, I don't think anybody really knows. But it was interesting for me anecdotally when I asked them about the medical marijuana, you know, various measures that would make it kind of more possible for people to, to get kind of locally grown marijuana as opposed to Mexican marijuana. It, it didn't. There didn't seem to have been a moment where they like felt the pinch from that in their business, which I think must just be a function of how much, just how huge the demand is in this country. Would you say the Mexican cartel rules the drug world in the U.S.? Do they have major competitors? They really do sort of rule the drug world. There are different. It's complicated. One of the big questions that that nobody has a, has a huge amount of clarity on is how far into local distribution they are. So. How present are the cartels in the United States? And what I was able to work out through my research is that the, the most profit with drugs actually comes at the level of kind of retail distribution. When you take like a wholesale, you know, 100 kilos of cocaine and you actually cut that up and start selling it in tiny little quantities to buyers, that's where the most profit accrues. And so you would think that the cartel would want to be involved in that. But that retail street dealing is also the riskiest you know, you have a lot of people fighting for turf. You've got law enforcement making arrests. And so it turns out that most of the drug dealing that happens in, this, in, in the United States is actually done, a lot of it is done by gangs who aren't necessarily, you know, a phone call away from handlers in the cartel in Mexico. I think a decision was made, a very kind of business-minded decision by the cartel, that, the cartels that they, they actually don't want to be involved in street dealing. So they're very involved kind of up to the point of wholesale distribution in this country. You'll have people in, you know, from the cartel in a city like Chicago, and they're, they're very present there. And what they do is they, they make sure that the drugs come in and then that they're sold to wholesale buyers. Um, and then they collect the money, and this is something a lot of people don't think about with drug cartels. Really, only half of the business is bringing drugs into the United States. The other half is sending money back to Mexico. So they have the responsibility of bringing those drugs here, but then also the equal responsibility, which is taking all that money and, and, and getting it back. And that's the extent to which they're they're really involved in this country. You know, at this point, I don't think the Colombians really really compare. There aren't other big organized crime groups in this particular space present much competition to the cartels. The real the real competition, frankly, is between one cartel and, and the others. In your New York Times article, you mentioned bloody turf wars. Are the shards of El Padrino's organization? Can you talk about those turf wars and how they're contributing to all the violence in Mexico? Yeah. So historically in Mexico, there had been a, um, I think, a little bit of a tendency on the part of the ruling party, which was the ruling party for years and years and years, the PRI, to uh, kind of turn a blind eye to the drug trade. 
And the thinking was essentially that, I mean, look, in some instances, this was corruption and, and the government was getting paid off. In other instances, I think they were just thinking, the people aren't really selling drugs in our country. They're moving it all up into the United States. It's kind of not our business. We don't want to confront these guys. So it'll be more peaceful if we leave well enough alone. And then under the presidency of Felipe Calderon, who's just finishing up his presidency now, um, he came into office in 2006. And in 2007, he really launched a big offensive against the cartels, really putting the pressure on them. And he did this in, in cooperation with the United States. I mean, we, we wanted him to. And the result, you know, was a couple of things. One was that um, there was a lot of bloodshed in terms of clashes between the government and the cartels. But then also, as the cartels felt that pressure, they really started fighting amongst themselves. And what we've seen is this incredible kind of carnage, which results from these shifting alliances um, and this kind of ever-evolving competition for who controls which portions of the border because the border, you know, the border crossings and where you can get things across are incredibly lucrative. If you control that turf, you can control anything that flows through there. And that has led to, I mean, people disagree about the numbers, but, but a number you often hear is about 60,000 fatalities between 2007 and now which to me is a pretty extraordinary number because, you know, those are the, kind of, the kinds of numbers we see in wars. And we, we don't talk about the notion that there, that there might be a war happening, a war of sorts happening in our neighbor to the south and our third largest trading partner. But I think in some ways you can, you can make a good argument that there is. You say you don't think the U.S. is doing enough. What do you think the second Obama administration should be doing? Well, I think there's a lot more that we could be doing. One thing I think is just to kind of recognize the gravity of the problem. And I think it's easy in some ways for us to be insulated from that, right? Because um, there hasn't been a lot of what they call spillover violence into the U.S. American cities, even cities on the border, are still very safe compared to cities in Mexico. Um, so one thing is just to kind of recognize what is happening and how grave it is. I think the next thing is to recognize that we bear some responsibility for this. Whatever you think about the drug cartels, I mean, they, they are selling drugs, and we are buying them. And they wouldn't be in this business if they didn't happen to live next door to the biggest market for consumer narcotics in the world, which is us. So I, I guess I think that there are kind of pragmatic, but also, frankly, there are moral reasons why we should we should take this seriously and feel like it's a shared responsibility to do something about it. Um, in terms of what we could be doing, you know, there is the Merida Initiative, which is which is a plan to give assistance to Mexico in this capacity. We we've been a little bit slow in actually meeting some of the um, goals that we had in terms of getting resources to them. But I also think the Merida Initiative focuses a lot on hardware. You know, we'll give them military helicopters and things like that in order to, to fight the battle, where I think a lot of what Mexico needs actually is really strong institutions. It needs a really a kind of a capable, not corrupt uh, national uh, police force and judiciary, where when you arrest somebody uh, for involvement in the drug trade, you know that they're actually going to go to trial and, and face real justice. Chapo Guzman, the guy who heads the Sinaloa cartel, it's sort of a national joke that he, he got sent away to prison, and then at a certain point, he just kind of walked out. And... The reason that he walked out was that he knew he was about to get extradited to the United States where he might have to face some real time. So I think some of what we need to do is, is the, the kind of unglamorous, messy work of helping our counterparts in Mexico fashion a real criminal justice system that looks uh, a little bit more like what we have here. And then inside this country, I think there's a great deal that we could do as well. I mean, I think that um, I mentioned earlier that we always think about the drugs moving north and not the money moving south. I think we could do much, much more to figure out the money of the cartels and how American dollars are going to the cartels. This is not an area that we have really resourced all that aggressively. Um, if you go to any border crossing uh, with Mexico, you'll see that there's a huge line of cars from Mexico heading into the United States and a very quick line from the United States into Mexico. And part of the reason for that is that most of our border checks are looking at things coming into the country, not things going out of the country. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that you would have anything like a one-to-one -one parity, but you could do a lot more going southbound than we do. And then finally, I think we really do need to think seriously about what 
the implications of legalization of marijuana might be for the cartels. And in some ways, the you know the ups the upshot of uh, these two initiatives in um, successful initiatives in Washington and Colorado is that we sort of have a laboratory in which to try and uh, study that now. I will tell you that that in Mexico, you know, where everybody knows that a big part of what the cartels do is move marijuana, which right now it's illegal in Mexico to move marijuana into the United States, and the government you know expends a lot of blood and treasure going after people for doing that. They look at those initiatives and they say, hey, wait a second, do we really, like, how many more lives do we want to lose trying to stop people in Mexico from moving this drug into the United States, which is now legal in two states in the U.S.? So I think that's going to be a tricky conversation we need to have with Mexico and one that, you know, it'll be a negotiation, something we need to work out. But Obama is actually meeting with the new president, uh, Peña Nieto, so he'll, he'll have the opportunity to start that conversation. In your story, you also reveal the involvement of U.S. banks in the Mexican drug war, and also that the guns the cartel use, many of them, are from the U.S. Right. I mean, these are these are two other elements, both of which are tricky for, for different reasons. So, you know, one question, which is a really um, tricky one to answer, is say you have a cartel like the Sinaloa cartel. Say they have $3 billion a year in revenue. Not all of that money is in cash. Some of that money finds its way into the illicit banking system. And we've had some indications that big multinational banks are, are actually really involved with laundering this money. Wachovia, I mean, it was actually Wells Fargo at the time, but since been bought by Wachovia, was implicated a couple of years ago in a, in a massive case where there were hundreds of millions of dollars coming from suspect sources in Mexico that ended up essentially getting laundered through the bank. There was just recently a big Senate investigation of HSBC, uh, and there are multiple criminal investigations in different jurisdictions across the U.S. of HSBC, uh, also for essentially turning a blind eye or not having appropriate checks on cartel money. This is an area where I think we could be doing much more. I think we, we cannot have a scenario in which our banks engage in that kind of activity and get and, and essentially get like a fine, which is what they get. I mean, they get a slap on the wrist. I think that uh, that you know there's a variety of steps we could take, but that but that's an area I think we want to crack down on much more. And then there's the guns issue, which is a was, is a really tricky one and and very controversial in this country. It was controversial even before the the Fast and Furious um, debacle. But there are, I, I forget the number, it's something like 5,000 gun stores within 50 miles of the Mexican border. And it's effectively impossible to, to legally purchase a gun in Mexico. Um, so, you know, people disagree about the precise numbers, but, you know, the great majority of the guns that are being used in the violence in Mexico do seem to trace back to the United States. And I think that should occasion some real reflection on our part. And uh, we should be thinking as creatively and aggressively as we can about trying to prevent that flow of guns going down there. I mean, I, I, mean, I hasten to say, not so creatively as they were thinking in Fast and Furious, where they kind of went too far and clearly made a, a great mistake. But, but I do think it's an, an issue we need to address. In the process of all your work, research, and interviews, what did you learn, and how did it change your view of corruption, underground economies, and the drug world? Boy, um, many, many ways. I mean, I'll give you one example. One thing that really knocked me out is in talking to people who've been involved in the cartels, you know, what they'll tell you is that the cartels control different border crossings, right? So like Tijuana was a, a border crossing that was really fought over because it's very lucrative. And eventually the Sinaloa cartel took control of it. And what that means is that only the Sinaloa cartel can move money down through that crossing and only the Sinaloa cartel can move drugs up north through it. And all the other cartels know this. And so you wouldn't really take the risk if you were, you know, part of the Zetas or the Gulf Cartel or the Knights Templar or one of these other organizations. You wouldn't take the risk of trying to send money down or drugs up north through a stretch of border that you didn't control. And it's funny. It took me the longest time to actually figure out the implications of that because it seems kind of obvious, right? But what that means is that the cartels have actually succeeded in doing what the United States and Mexico through all our history have not been able to do which is control the border. You know, the cartels actually have enough control and enough insight and kind of vision into what's going on there that they're able to say, okay, you can go through, but you cannot go through. And obviously they have advantages we don't, right? Because it's like, if you get caught, we'll kill you, not just throw you in jail or deport you. 
but it was it was kind of stunning to me to think about the idea that that they've actually come up with a way of policing the border that is in some respects much more effective and successful than anything we've managed to come up with in several hundred years. That was writer Patrick Redden-Keefe, Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Everywhere I look, there's a dead end waiting. Temperatures dropping at the rotten oasis. Stealing kisses from the leprous faces. Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Elaine Taylor. This week, we'll continue our discussion with expert paleontologists about the Eocene. The Eocene is characterized by the rise and diversification of mammals and a warm and tropical earth, where palm trees grew around the South Pole. If you didn't catch our show last week, here's a look back about what the Eocene was like and how it came to an end. Utah preserves a a portion of the Eocene. The Eocene actually is a pretty long epoch. It lasted for 18 million years. That uh, spanned about 55 million to about 34 million years ago. Which means that it began 9 million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs. So when the dinosaurs went extinct, the mammals really became fairly diverse fairly quickly. And uh, the Eocene world was very different from the world that we see today. It was extremely tropical, extremely warm. Something kind of like the Louisiana today. Even the globe, the entire Earth, was they call it a global greenhouse. And you have evidence of tropical forests as far north as Greenland. The whole Earth was tropical, almost entirely. At this point, it seemed like things were going well for the animals of the Eocene. And for the next few million years, that appeared true. They were continuously getting bigger. The climate stayed warm. But then something happened. They were no longer in the fossil record at that point. So the animals that defined the Eocene apparently were gone. This week in part two of Life in the Eocene, we'll look at changes that occurred during this era, like the fluctuation of greenhouse gases and the shifting of the continents, and how we can relate what we learned from the past to the changes taking place on our planet today. We are guided by our experts, Drs. Beth Townsend, Benjamin Berger, and Paul Murphy. Go back in time and you'd say, yeah, like you get it. You're in a tropical forest. You would have flowering plants. You'd have plants that were bearing different kinds of fruits from nuts to sweet fruits, that kind of thing. It, I think it'd be easily recognizable. Um, all the kinds of mammals that we find out there are things that, like I said, if you went back in time, you'd, you'd kind of expect to see them in a tropical forest. We have small and to medium-sized primates. Although many of the animals that evolved in the Eocene are similar to ones we know today, the climate was unrecognizable. Today, it's, you know, as you head north, it really cools down quickly. But during the Eocene, you didn't have that. There are also fossils of things like alligators and palm trees and snakes above the Arctic Circle. So it was a, a much warmer place to be. And you actually get these big, huge trees, which are called the Don Redwood trees. They were really abundant during the Eocene up into the high Arctic. And so the mystery is how you could have it be so, so nice up there during this time period. The Eocene is generally characterized as being warm and tropical, but that doesn't tell the whole story. The climate of the Eocene began with a sharp spike in temperatures. This peak is called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. The maximum lasted around 20,000 years and saw a temperature increase of around 11 degrees Fahrenheit. The Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum was really just a blip compared to the 25 or so million years that represent the Eocene. Even though the climate cooled back down after the maximum, it was by no means cold compared to modern temperatures. Following the thermal maximum, the Earth went through a period of gradual warming between 56 and 49 million years ago. This period is commonly referred to as the Eocene Optimum. 
As our experts explained, many animals lived up into the Earth's polar regions, and there was little ice present on the Earth. There are many theories about why this warming occurred. The two terms you hear bantied about quite a bit are greenhouse world and icehouse world. Greenhouse world is one um, which is very similar to that of the early Eocene. That world was associated with greenhouse gas levels, carbon dioxide, and methane in the atmosphere that were two to four times what they are today, and they were associated with a lot higher sea surface temperatures. The idea is that there were events happening on the ocean floor like increased tectonic activity. Plate tectonics is the movement of, of plates in the Earth's crust um, over geologic time. And there, over the course of geologic history, there can be increased rifting in, in which there are a lot of gases injected into the ocean when rifting increases at what we call mid-oceanic ridges. Uh, this is one so for most of Earth's history, the continents haven't been arranged like they are today. They're connected differently than what we're used to seeing today. So South America was an island continent. Africa wasn't connected to uh, Asia Minor. It was an island continent as well. And there appears to be a connection via the Bering land bridge between uh, North America and Asia. Australia also was an island continent, and also so was India. India hadn't really docked yet with Asia. As Dr. Murphy explained, all of this tectonic activity would have released greenhouse gases through plates straining apart from one another deep under the ocean and increased volcanic activity. Plate tectonics may have also played another role in the warming climate of the Eocene. Some of it has to do with um, plate tectonics so that the oceanic circulation patterns were different than today. Uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific flowed together, and there was a seaway that connected the Mediterranean through Asia, so you had better oceanic circulation. As the Eocene progressed, the warming trend seemed to have just stopped somewhere around 49 million years ago. After this, global temperatures began to fall about as quickly as they had increased. Additionally, around this time, the island continents that Dr. Townsend described earlier were beginning to dock onto other land masses, we asked Dr. Berger to explain this trend. That, um, you had a lot of uplift, and that was causing the cool down the EC um, at the end of the, the Eocene, beginning of the Ligocene. The way to get CO2 out of the atmosphere is to cause weathering. So weathering of rocks basically causes the rocks to, um, to produce um, calcium carbonate. And where you have a lot of like a huge, huge mountain range like the Himalayas coming up, you have a drawdown of CO2. And it's a very gradual drawdown. It takes millions of years. But when you have a lot of uplift, you have a drawdown of CO2. And that might have been some of it. On land, the Himalayas are pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and trapping it in minerals. Another hypothesis for the sudden decrease in CO2 suggests that a plant called Azola which grew on the surface of the Arctic Ocean during the Eocene, breathed in CO2 to use during photosynthesis. As the plants died, they would sink to the bottom of the ocean, essentially trapping the CO2 miles away from the Earth's atmosphere. What can changes in Earth's climate 50 million years ago tell us about today, and why is this research important? The, the Eocene is a fascinating time, I think. Uh, one of the more fascinating times geologically, because it, uh, the, the world was so different, but there are some particularly interesting um, analogies to the climate of today and discussions about greenhouse gases, etc. So I was interested in trying to figure out what happened to the, to the animals and the plants who were living at that time period. That has importance today in trying to figure out, like, you know, what the impact of climate change will be, um, what animals are susceptible to climate change, what animals can actually survive and go through the boundaries. So... Um, that's kind of why I'm interested. So it's more going out and finding fossils, identifying them, marking where they are stratigraphically in the layers of rock, and then we can do things like examine the isotopes, um, and that can tell us a little bit about correlating that to the climate record, which is usually done in offshore drilling, where they get to um, do a sort of deep-sea drilling where they can have a really wonderful record of what's happening 
and climate from ocean cores, we can correlate that using isotopes to what's happening here in Utah and then kind of figure out what's happening globally with all the animals and plants during these time periods. So that's kind of what I'm interested in. So animals that seem to be the best adapted are... Well, I found that are animals that are terrestrial, that means they can move about. And so animals that have the ability to change their distribution through time. So animals like um, primates, for example, that live in trees and require certain conditions, they're the ones that usually are impacted the most because once the forests are gone, they aren't able to move across the landscape. So I've been looking at a number of different animals that during the Paleocene boundary, they moved northward. And so they seem to track, to basically tracked that zone that they're optimally adapted for um, as the climate changed. Animals that are unable to move are the ones that suffer the extinctions. So, um, and that's just through habitat loss, through climate change. So there's certain groups, definitely primates, and definitely animals that have a particular niche too, tend to be, and smaller animals tend to be a little bit more prone to extinction than some of the larger ones. The climate change of the past can help us predict what might happen to animals on Earth today as we begin warming once again. wasn't the only reason for animals to move during the Eocene. There is a lot of research, for instance, in South America and the South American continent being, having this, it, was, it had an endemic or a unique mammalian fauna that evolved on its own without any, a great deal of input from other faunas from different continents for almost 60 million years. A lot of this played out over millions of years, but you had certain events that were pretty quick. Probably a good example is the Isthmus of Panama, so the, when South America and North America reconnected, when that happened, you had all these South American animals that had basically evolved in isolation for millions of years, and all these animals in North America that evolved in isolation for millions of years, all of a sudden they started migrating into each other's continents. Certain groups um, that came up from South America um, like armadillos came from South America, and then the carnivores moved down into um, horses, moved down to um, South America, and they sort of competed with the animals there. And so you had this great competition. So many of the animals during that time period go extinct because they, all of a sudden there was another animal that fulfilled the same niche. There were animals very much like horses that aren't even related to horses that lived in South America called Laopterans, and these guys. Um, they look kind of like a horse. They were smaller, but um, they weren't able to compete with the horses coming down from North America. You had um, the giant ground sloths that came up from South America, that came into North America for a while. Eventually, they you know, went extinct. And there's debate whether they went extinct from uh, climate change or hunting or um, just being preyed upon by some of these carnivores, like saber-toothed cats and stuff. So in South America, you actually had a... Um, marsupial saber-toothed cat. The difference is that wow. in the lower jaw, there's like a little bony pouch to kind of protect the tooth. In some cases, animals may have taken a more adventurous route to their new homelands. It's a huge question is how did some animals, like for instance monkeys, how did monkeys get to South America? It seems that they might have rafted from Africa. Hunks of land that got torn off of the African continent, probably at the, at the river deltas. And they might have rafted across the Atlantic Ocean when the, the, the span, the distance between the South American continent and the African continent was, a, was, was much shorter. Climate change and migration during the Eocene should give us hope about our current warming situation. But it should also signal a warning. Life on Earth didn't end when the climate warmed. In fact, the North and South Poles provided a cozy home to many animals and plants during the Eocene. However, as we heard from our experts, changing climate means changing habitat, and those animals that can't adapt or migrate to a new habitat that suits their needs will disappear. Current warming may have a bigger impact on animals and plants today because of how quickly the climate is changing now. 
Climate change during the Eocene took place over millions of years. Today, it's taking place over decades. Additionally, animals of the Eocene could migrate to better habitat, whereas many of today's animals have nowhere to move to because of expanding human populations. Changing habitat doesn't just impact animals. For much of the Eocene, vast portions of land were underwater due to melted ice caps, something that scientists warn will happen again, forcing humans to adapt or migrate. Luckily, unlike animals of the past, humans can plan ahead and learn from Earth's long history. The story of the Eocene is one of increased greenhouse gases, which is where we are right now. But it is also a story of carbon sequestration and the resiliency of life on this planet. Okay, so everything we've talked about so far, what animals lived where, when they evolved, where they moved to, how the continents were arranged, and what the climate looked like, all of this has been discovered through paleontological research. We at SQ Radio think it's pretty cool that researchers can basically reconstruct a past world through their knowledge of fossils and geology. So we decided to learn a bit more about how paleontology works. First, we'll talk to Dr. Townsend about how we learn the age of a fossil. As it turns out, it takes some high-tech equipment and some basic knowledge of geology. Fossils are generally found within layers of sedimentary rock. So they're sedimentary rocks, so they were deposited by water. And the type of sedimentary rocks that they are are uh, they're called fluvial rocks, and these fluvial rocks means that they were deposited by rivers. How we date them is... It's pretty straightforward. We can use different types of elements that we find in the rocks. For instance, there's a lot of volcanic activity during the Eocene, and you'll see different ash layers. You can date that ash layer and get an idea of, of a pretty darn good idea, actually, of the, um, the date when the volcanic eruption occurred. Scientists can date some elements based off of their known half-lives. Isotopes, which are unstable versions of an element, are found in rock. These elements decay at predictable speeds, and the time it takes for half of the element to decay is known as a half-life. Paleontologists measure how many half-lives a sample has gone through since it was deposited in a rock layer. This way they can fairly accurately determine the age of a certain layer. And based on where the, the river rock that we were just talking about, that river rock is related to the volcanic, the volcanic layer where we can get our, our real radiocarbon, radiometric dates, we just we say, well, you know, if the river rocks are below the volcanic ash layer, then they are older than that date. And if they are above that volcanic ash layer, then they're younger than that particular date. So the bones are preserved beneath layers and layers of rock. And over the years, the tissues that make up the bone are replaced with minerals, essentially turning the bone into stone. When people tend to think of fossils, they, the first thing that jumps into your head is probably a dinosaur skeleton. And in reality... Most of the fossils that you find, whether they be dinosaur or mammal or something else, are fragmentary. They're, they're typically small and broken. So um, if we're lucky, we find a complete bone or tooth or maybe uh, a jawbone with some teeth in it. So the best way to kind of tell the bone is to look for all these little um, holes, and that's basically the vascularization where the blood vessels would have gone. Here's a toe bone of somebody. Wow. Brain metacarpal, and that looks mammal. There's a small early horse here called Epihippus. Yeah, fairly common. There's some good stuff. That's a... Um, it turns blood. out that many fossils aren't uncovered by paleontologists. I asked Dr. Murphy how this works and how they decide which fossils to save in museums. I feel like most people think that if a fossil is found, it, it belongs in a museum automatically, and they don't maybe realize how common they are or how often they're uncovered, not by paleontologists, but by people in like the oil and gas industry or in construction. And so could you maybe describe the process of uh, resource management and what you hope to do? Well, this is an area that I call mitigation paleontology. What we do in, in compliance and with uh, federal laws that protect um, paleontological resources, 
we ensure that these fossils that are dug up during construction or that are in the path of construction, which is an important point to make, so the work actually starts before any construction occurs, we make sure that the fossils are salvaged as well as their contextual data, um, which is very important. Um, and the work is all done by paleontologists that are permitted, and we uh, make sure that these fossils are reposited in a museum where they'll then be available for research. Land management agencies like the, the Bureau of Land Management, they actually have paleontologists on their staff too. And those paleontologists have developed significance criteria so that together with our expertise in the field, we are not interested in collecting material which is unidentifiable and just going to take up space and be of no use to, to any scientific projects. Um, we're interested in collecting fossils and data that are applicable to research, and also we're trying to anticipate what research interests and possibilities might be in the future, but of course that's kind of hard to do. Do you think this increased, I guess, I don't know, resource exploration or usage has helped to contribute to what we know about the Eocene in the West? Like, has have we found a many more species or things because of drilling or construction? Absolutely. And I think you can successfully make the argument that fossils are being recovered and put into museums that would have never been found otherwise. On BLM land, on federal land in general, um, it is illegal to collect vertebrate fossils without a permit, but there are allowances made for hobby collectors for collecting other types of fossils on federal land. So if they have questions about that, they, they should just check in with their local BLM office. The paleontologists working in Utah intently study different aspects of the Eocene. However, in talking with them, they all shared one common goal for our state. The fossil record in Utah is one of the great resources that exists in your state, and we just want to make sure people are aware of it and hopefully get them to love it as much as we do, and so we can get more people involved in getting more fossils out of the ground. The Great Salt Studies of the past through the fossil record yield valuable insights, which help scientists predict the impact of climate change in the future. We know that the ocean changes pH levels naturally, but these changes are very gradual. The last levels of acidification, which approach today's occurred 55 million years ago during the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. Mass extinctions of certain marine organisms occurred during this period, and the ocean's recovery stretched across millions of years. Though this past acidification differs from the one we are experiencing today, it can still answer many questions about what we should expect of the future. Patterns are inferred from ancient times. While the 30% growth of our CO2 levels since the Industrial Revolution are still a fraction of the Eocenes, Antarctic researchers project more of those very same prehistoric greenhouse gas levels within decades, igniting the start of another Eocene-like epoch, only this time at an accelerated speed. It might be time to set up those umbrella-laden beach resorts next to those penguins and polar bears. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Elaine Taylor, and Susie Montgomery. Sound engineering and production support by Clint Holgate. Thank you for listening. The Great Salt Lake.
Support for Science Questions is provided by the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu slash science. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about a mass grave found in Nephi, Utah, and how archaeology can provide a voice for the dead. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council, with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. In 2006, while digging the foundation for a new house in the central Utah town of Nephi, construction workers uncovered human bones. In fact, seven Native American skeletons were discovered piled in what could only be described as a mass grave. Who were these people? State archaeologists were called in to map the site and carefully excavate the remains. Gunshot wounds were found in the skulls of several of the skeletons, and one, the skeleton of a young boy, showed a gunshot wound through his upper leg. Analysis of the remains revealed they were all males, ranging in age from 10 to 35, and all in good health until their deaths. So what happened to them? Historical records from 1853 shed some light on this mystery. That summer, the so-called Walker War erupted, and hostilities between Mormons and Utah's Native people intensified into a series of tit-for-tat killings. Ute leader Wakara directed raids on Mormon settlements in retaliation for their encroachment on Native lands, and the settlers responded in kind. On October 2, 1853, a group of Utes, or possibly Goshutes, came to the fort at Nephi. The official record states that the town leaders wanted to question them about the recent deaths of four men from Nantai, but that the Indians showed fight and that a skirmish ensued. By the end of the day, seven Native Americans were dead and their bodies thrown into a mass grave. But forensic evidence reveals that these men did not die in any skirmish, but were instead coldly executed. The trajectories of the gunshot wounds indicate that they were shot in the back of the head, possibly while on their knees. Personal diary entries written by two women who witnessed the event confirm the forensic analysis. This incident of the Walker War and the grave's discovery 153 years later shows how the historic record can be contradicted by scientific evidence and how archaeology can allow victims to tell their story. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were done by Ronald Rood. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.